Please look with me at the book of 1 John, chapter 5, and you can see from your bulletin there that we will be in verses 13 to 21. I became profoundly convinced this last week that I wanted to teach about prayer, specifically because the Lord has answered prayer in my life in what I deem to be a life-altering way. And that ought to be maybe more common than what it is many times in the Christian life, that the Lord uh, would be doing a work in us that we've been praying for. Now, when you think of prayer, you need to think of it as the vehicle by which God changes you. The world thinks that there's power in prayer, or that prayer is powerful. But the biblical way to think about prayer is that God is powerful. And as you know from James 5, God uses the prayer of the righteous man, meaning the man to whom Christ's righteousness is imputed. It doesn't mean somehow that the guy who has achieved a higher degree of spiritual eliteness is somehow a better prayer. You know, I remember in in college when I was first exposed to anything Christian, and a a friend said to me, be careful how you treat me because I have a powerful prayer life. (laughs) Well, that scared me. But that's the wrong way to influence somebody, to threaten them with the idea that if, you know, you do things that I don't like, then I'm going to ask God to crush you. Uh, That's a little bit different from the concept of imprecatory prayers, imprecatory psalms. Those things are righteous. You know, when we pray for the lost to be brought low, we're not praying for their demise. We're praying, as Paul referred to, the idea that they would be turned over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. Those are Paul's words with regard to how we ought to think about those who are false converts, those who profess to know Christ but prove that they don't. My long-term prayer for my own life is sanctification. That ought to be yours as well, and and for many of you, I know that it is. You want to have victory over your sin. You want to be effective in the workplace. You want to be effective in your home. You don't want to be a hypocrite. You want your children to see in you what you're trying to produce in them, and you fail as I do. And you get discouraged, and you might think thoughts like Tony talked about last week, that indwelling sin being one of the most discouraging things in our lives as believers. So what often happens is the the person who wants to be deemed born again, and that's more important to him than actually displaying that he is born again, he will strive with his own efforts to produce in people's minds the idea that he is born again, and so he covers his sin himself. And as a friend of mine used to paraphrase Proverbs 28, 13, he would say, Todd, what you cover, God will uncover. But what you uncover, God will cover. And this, friends, beloved, this well distills the reality of Christian relationships. It well distills the reality of gospel-centered, gospel-saturated Christian relationships. The way it's stated in Proverbs 27 is that faithful are the wounds of a friend and deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. 
But there's so many nuances and misgivings and varied factors that play into the context of Christian relationships where we all fail. We all fail, whether it's receiving correction or giving correction. And so the apex of all our interaction, the foundation, the focal point, the one who should be our vision is Christ. Now that, listen, that can easily sound like a trite sort of standard reply, catch-all phrase. We'll just trust the Lord. We'll just look to Jesus. Well, that is the command of Scripture. And at the point where that has become an overused phrase against which we become desensitized, we need to go back to it and really plumb the depths of the reality of it. I believe this text we're going to look at together this morning will help you and help me do that. As I said earlier, my my lifelong prayer since I became a Christian was that I would be conformed to the image of Christ. And as I look in the mirror on a daily basis, I see where I'm not. I see patterns of sin in my life. And by patterns, I don't mean an unrepentant commitment to those sins. I mean that I see recurrence of the same sins. Again, like Tony talked about last week, it's one of the most discouraging things in our lives. We want to be effective, we want to be faithful, we want to be useful, and then we, we get tripped up, not so much by other people's sin, but by our own. It's me, that's what I do. I mean, my sin's a much bigger problem in my life than your sin is in my life, much bigger, because I'm around my sin all the time. I'm only around your sin occasionally, you know, maybe every time I see you. But what a joy. What a joy. Think of it this way. Let me just kind of give you a a brief, heartfelt distillation of what we're talking about today and the joy that comes in it. And that is this. You and I have the privilege and the joy to rest in what Christ accomplished on the cross in such a way that we can talk about each other's sin to each other. That's kind of the idea this morning. You may have come from a context where that wasn't what you do. And at the point where someone attempted to address your sin, it was just a matter of anger. It was a matter of their thinking that they were better than you. And certainly all of us have been guilty of that in one sense or another. And so you come into that environment somewhat defensive. You know, I've been there. And by the way, let me just be honest with you. I've been there recently. And so the joy, again, that kind of my heartfelt desire to give a distilled expression of what we're looking at this morning, is the true, sheer joy that you and I share, that we don't have to be concerned about the termination of our relationships because we address one another's sin, or even when we fail when we address one another's sin, or even when we fail to receive confrontation for our own sin. Because we will fail. I can remember years ago in the context of a church discipline situation that a pastor said to me, you know what? Everybody complains about failure of the system, failure of the application, failure of how it was addressed. That's the quick response of the person who is on the receiving end of correction so often. Well, you didn't handle it right. Well, that may be true, but for the moment, the far better disposition is to say, bring it. 
I mean, really, really bring it. And anything else is just going to slow the process of your own sanctification, and I stand guilty before you. And so it's been my privilege this last week, my joy-filled privilege to have been confronted with my sin by people who love me and love you. And you know, so often in our day, a pastor will stand on the other side of having rejected confrontation. I mean, many of you know who Art Azurdi is, and I don't mind mentioning his name because you need to know that this guy failed not one night and then was exposed the next day. This took years for Art, who is a, a passionate, compassionate pastor and faithful, effective preacher who was useful in many people's lives. And people were devastated when it was discovered that Art had been committing adultery for years. Now, beloved, let's be honest about that. I'm not professing to know all the details, and my heart breaks for him and his wife and his family. But I'll tell you this. Somewhere along the way, Art became insulated against the ability of believers in his local church to address his sin. And so a layer at a time, he developed an inability to receive correction, and a layer at a time, he had developed the ability to plunge headlong into un bridled sexual sin. That's what happened. That we know. I guarantee you that much we know. And I would have hoped that he would have stayed in that local church, subject himself to the elders that know him and love him. And again, I don't know all the details. There's more to it than, than what I know. I know that his wife had some health issues, and so their decision was to leave and potentially participate in another local church out of the area, well, that might be good and it might be a wonderful church, but beloved, I really, really believe that that delays the process by which art might be restored unto the Christian faith. He'll never be restored unto the ministry, but the forgiveness and the, the atonement of Jesus Christ allows for and really ensures legitimate restoration for the one who shows legitimate repentance having been confronted with his sin but as i said i'm not here to tell you this morning that i'm on the other end of this i hope you will love me more than you fear me i hope you will love god more than you want to be popular with me i hope that the unity of our church is far more important to you than our fellowship and our fellowship should be very important but think of it our fellowship yours and mine me as an individual you as an individual, our fellowship is dependent upon your willingness to love God more than you love my favor. Repentance should be a daily practice. It should be a daily practice. And repentance, when it is a daily practice, and then this from Colossians 3, a willingness to, to put the members of the flesh to death. Paul calls it the members of your body. When you're willing to be engaged in that way, then you gain victory. And a dear, dear sister in Christ to me said this this week, Todd, I, I want you to never commit that sin again, and I believe that can happen. Now, that's just hope-filled love. That's hope-filled love. It's not Wesleyan Arminianism that says somehow you're going to attain perfection, you're going to achieve the ability to never, ever sin again. It's to say that the expressions of sin ought to 
give into self-control, spirit-filled self-control. You know, you, I've, I've said this to you before. I need to receive it. You can keep your mouth shut. Believe it or not. Let's trust the Lord in this together and just know that as I approach this with you, my heart is bursting with joy. It's bursting with the joy of the love that I share with believers in our church who love me far more than they love shallow fraternization that bypasses the reality that there's sin going on. Let me say this before we look at the text. It's one last thing. When it comes to letting love cover a multitude of sins, it never means that you pass over it as if it didn't happen. Right? It never means that you pretend sin didn't happen. Think of it. If you do that with your kids, you're going to raise monsters. You don't want to raise monsters. That's a theological term that I worked hard on before this morning. Let's go to God's Word, shall we? First uh, John 5, 13 through 21. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Father, we ask that you would, in fact, use your word in two very specific ways this morning. One, that you would produce in the believer a willingness to pray and practice the truth of eternal life resulting in sanctification for believers. The second thing we ask for is for those in our midst, whether they are here today or not, that you would expose them via the honest, faithful, spirit-filled, righteous living of believers to the reality that they themselves, in fact, are not believers. We believe that especially in 1 John, you have drawn a very wide and clear line between believers and unbelievers. We pray today that you'd not allow us or anyone in our midst to blur those lines, but that we would expose that line, that we would amplify that line, and that that line would be bridged by the gospel, and that those who are not in Christ would repent of their sins as we who are in Christ repent of our sins. It's in our Savior's name we pray. Amen. This morning we will observe four truths about trusting God that will result in a clear distinction between the believer and the unbeliever so that we will humbly 
be involved in each other's spiritual growth and the new birth of others. Beloved, that's the Christian life. As you strive to glorify Christ, it's going to be manifest in three different ways. One, it'll be manifest in your singing, in your Bible reading, your Bible study, your your love for God via an understanding of his word such that you want to proclaim that and profess it to others. But you're declaring God's word, you're glorifying him in the moment, so to speak. You're ascribing his glory to him as you interact with him. That's the first way. The second way is with those who are redeemed, with his children. Ephesians 4.11, why are you here this morning? Your primary purpose for being here this morning ought to be to glorify Christ in the equipping of the saints, right? You're being equipped. You're not here to be evangelized, most of you. You're not here to evangelize. That's not why the church gathers. Sadly, in our culture, that has become the preeminent focus in so many churches every Sunday morning. Message after message after message is geared for the unbeliever. And then there's this false sense of security granted to those by saying, welcome to the family of God, when there's absolutely no way that someone saying that could even know that that's true of the persons to whom they're giving that welcome. Ephesians 4, your purpose for being here is to be equipped and to be involved in the equipping. Why? For the work of ministry, specifically the ministry of reconciliation. This is why our ladies are set on doing a study in apologetics. That we as a church would be effective in our community, not simply asking people. In fact, avoiding the idea of sensationalizing a bunch of stories and asking people to ask Jesus into your heart. So many of you experienced false conversions because you fell prey to that nonsense. You heard it week after week after week. Don't you want to accept Christ? Don't you want to pray the sinner's prayer? All these things that are simply not in the Bible. And you heard it time and time and time again. And because you heard it so many times, you believed it. And then what happened? Then what happened was you began to think that the Christian life is a life of non-victory over sin because you didn't have victory over sin. And the result then was that you not only had a bad understanding, a wrong understanding of evangelism and the ministry of reconciliation, now, by necessity, you have a bad understanding of what it means to be a Christian. And so both of those bad theologies support and strengthen and nurture each other, and they both need to be exploded. So with our efforts this morning, our hope is that you not only would exalt Christ in your hearts, you not only would be involved in the equipping of the saints, but in in so doing, you would leave here and be effectively involved in helping others understand what it means to be a believer. But it starts here. It starts here. Friends, there are unbelievers among us. Paul promises us that there will be. He promises us that. Now, now, don't don't be looking around the room. (laughs) Know people. Know them well. Know that when the Bible calls you to confront a brother, the assumption from the beginning is this is a believer. You ought to believe that. Then as you get down that path, you start having, then you start going, hmm, Well, now I'm not so sure. And it's not wrong to tell a person that you're convinced is a believer that they're acting like an unbeliever. It's not wrong if that's what they're doing. And I mean mean to do that graciously and lovingly. 
But it starts here in, in our church for us, in other local churches for others who are involved in faithful local churches. Point number one, I want you to trust God with your soul. Right? Why in the world could you think that you could be effectively involved in helping someone else if you aren't yourself faithfully entrusting your own soul to God himself? John starts with these words in this section. I write these things to you. Now, we could spend a lot of time on a bibliology this morning. We won't. We'll spend a little time on it. But I urge you that if you weren't with us, for our recent systematic theology study. We called it Theology for Life. If you weren't here for that, go back online, listen to Jason's message on prolegomena, listen to Brad's message on bibliology. That'll get you started. You need that. You need to understand what the Bible says about itself. This is what John is saying. These things are written. This passage is deeply rooted in the concept of the sufficiency of the Scripture. These things are written. You know, not given to you in a dream. There's so much talk these days about so many Muslims coming to know Christ in Middle Eastern nations where they're not. Their testimony is that Jesus comes to them in a dream. You know anything about Islam? It's all about dreams. So Jesus is just the new idol, and it's a false Jesus. And all these people are professing now to know Christ. Maybe they've abandoned Muhammad, but they've embraced a false Jesus if they think that they're Redemption has come as a result of some Jesus coming to them in a dream. He doesn't do that. It is by the proclamation of the word that people come to know Jesus Christ. That's how it happens. That could happen in a casual conversation over lunch. But it's not going to happen in a dream when you're asleep. There needs to be cognizant awareness of what's going on. This is why Paul says in Romans 12, we are to be sanctified by the renewing of the mind. And that doesn't happen when you're sleeping, at least not evangelistically. I write these things to you, he says. These things have been written for this purpose. In John 20, verse 30, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Ours is a written religion. Our gospel is a written, delivered gospel. When we ask someone who has professed to want to associate with and lock arms with Anchor Bible Church as a member, we ask that person to Explain how you've been saved by the gospel. And over the years, over the last eight years, we've had a number of wonderful, wonderful expressions of what that looks like. But there's a common denominator in every one of them for those who have come to the place where that has been their desire. And we've, we've made that public and we've affirmed them. You and I have affirmed them. We've affirmed each other, right? The common denominator is the actual gospel. Many people will write out a testimony, and I'm not talking about folks that have submitted applications to our church. I'm just saying, in general, people will say, yeah, my testimony is, and you hear all kinds of stuff, you know, it started in the third grade, and then the ninth grade, and, and I had a bad boss, you know, and I had a bad wife, and a bad car, and a bad cat, all these things that really have very little to do, in fact, nothing to do with the gospel itself, and they might be helpful, they might be helpful, but they're secondary, and there's no mention of the power of sin for death, 
the power of the atonement for forgiveness and the power of the resurrection for new life. If you're missing any one, any one or two of those things or all three, you don't have the gospel. You've got a false gospel with any two of those three things. So many people would say, my hope is in Jesus, and they know nothing about the resurrection. So they have no hope, according to Paul. They have no hope. And that's why they have no victory over sin. And it hits them one day. Wow, that's been the problem all along. I never placed my hope in the resurrection of Christ. Therefore, I've had no victory over sin. In 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul gives us this structure for counseling. It's all rooted in the sufficiency of Scripture. He speaks of reproof, correction, training in righteousness. Verses you ought to have in your back pocket when you think, now why do we believe what we believe? We're given truth so that we would be equipped and ready to train people in righteousness. That's discipleship. And like we've said to you so often, who are you doing that with? And if you say, I'm not ready for that, well, then the question is what? Who's doing that with you? There ought to be somebody. There's not a person in this room who shouldn't be submitting to someone's discipleship efforts. Maybe a handful of people. Plenty of opportunities for that in our church. But further in verse 13 in our text this morning, John says, I write these things to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And so this is where we get the concept of eternal security. But really, as we've told you many, many times, the real issue is perseverance of the saints, that you would know that you are persevering rather than just kind of trying to do well at covering your sin. Or maybe you're even literally trying to do well at overcoming your sin, but you're not experiencing any legitimate success. That's why John has written this, that you may know that you have eternal life. And so it's a call to trust God with your soul, to think rightly from Scripture, right? Why do I say that? Because he says, I write these things. He doesn't say, I gave you these things in a Netflix video. I've written it to you. Many have rightly called the Bible God's love letter to his children. And so for those who have gotten to the end of, you know, John's very serious and penetrating and polarizing letter, this is a word of encouragement. You know, I know I've kind of socked you between the eyes. Let me give you some comfort. I've explained to you that if you walk in the dark, you're not walking in the light, that there's a drastic distinction between the children of God and the children of the devil. And a believer could go, ooh. I don't know. Sometimes I walk in the darkness. Maybe that's me. And John says, hold on. Don't dismiss any of that, but here's how you can know. In a distilled way, it's a call to trust God with your soul via an understanding of his word. That's what this is. Now, do you need the affirmation of believers? You absolutely do. Absolutely. But I would strongly suggest that affirmation needs to come from legitimate believers. You know, not that crowd that you hang out with at lunch having some kind of Bible study or whatever at work. They might be believers. They might be strong believers. I don't know. But I know this. There's no context for that in Scripture. If you're doing that, fantastic if it's a legit thing. But the Bible calls you to be faithfully involved in a local church. And so by doing that, then you can have the affirmation 
of others that I think you'll see throughout this text. In fact, um, looking at 1 John overall, what you see is discipleship. He speaks to little children, he speaks to young men, and he speaks to older men. And so there's a progression of spiritual growth. These are terms of endearment rightly applied to particular groups of people. He wouldn't say to a brand new believer, it's good to see that you've become an old man in the faith. Right? He wouldn't say to a mature Christian man, hey, little buddy. Right? He's using the appropriate terms, and I would encourage you to be very careful about what terms you apply to people. Be careful about calling someone you're convinced is not a believer brother or sister, unless, of course, it's your brother or sister, and then I guess. But when we say that, we say, oh, brother, thank you so much. We're affirming that person's redemption. I want to be careful with that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. That verse gets thrown around a lot, doesn't it? Let's look at it in context. Verse 17 says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people who loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. You see what's going on here? John 3.16 is not just about the idea that everyone who displays belief in the Lord has eternal life. It's about what the difference between that person is and the one who says he has done that but really doesn't. Their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. You know, he pretends, and he pretends well. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. A very important tag in that verse. His works have been carried out in God, meaning that they are subject to and in accordance with the character of God. His life reflects the person of God. And so we wouldn't say to someone who's clearly walking in sin, well, you know, remember that John 3.16 plainly says, God so loved the world Whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And you believed in him, right? So you trust in that. Wrong. For the person whose life clearly displays that he doesn't believe in him, even though he passionately says he does believe in him, I would say let the truth of God rather than the proposed truth of this dear soul ignite your thinking. Love that person enough to bring the word of God to bear first on your own heart and then his own heart by trusting the Lord with your soul. Point number two, trust God with your desires. In my lifetime, I've put a lot of emphasis on the idea from Psalm 37 verse 4 that if you delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart. True statement, right? But so often, as you know, there will be those who will take the latter half of the verse and dismiss the first half like yesterday's trash. 
And so there's little or no effort to really genuinely delight themselves in the Lord. What they think that means is when they're out and about that, you know, they can throw God's name around or whatever. <laughs> Let's just say that's not delighting yourself in the Lord. To be godly, to be God-word, to be God-driven, you know, to think God's thoughts after him means that you're, you're engaging with God. You're involved in prayer. You're trusting the Lord with your own soul through prayer. You know, you go to the Lord with your sin before you go to somebody else about their own. You go to the Lord with your own sin before you go to someone else about your sin. You're really thinking it through. You're really doing what you believe you must do to think rightly about your condition. It is not at all unusual for legitimate believers to bypass this process of trusting the Lord with his, her own uh, soul's condition and becoming so engaged in the sinfulness and the restoration of others that they plummet and they get entangled in sin and they get so entangled in it that what they get good at is pretending that they're not entangled in it. And then there's a mess God can clean up that mess, but only for the person who's willing first to trust the Lord with his own soul. But second, it is critical that that person then would trust God with his desires. Anything else is manipulation. Anything else is manipulation. That's not to say that when you trust God with your desires that you don't engage other people. Of course you do at some point. But if you're doing that without a legitimate, obvious, tangible, empirical expression of your trust in the Lord, it's manipulation. And it's probably self-righteousness. It could very well be that you and I have been guilty. I will confess I have been guilty at times. And it's hard to know what's going on in your own heart. You're doing the right thing. You're striving to do the right thing. But certain nuances in a particular scenario might tempt you to engage in getting somebody in a headlock and requiring them to do what you know they should do rather than speaking with gentleness and love and kindness and patience. John's call here is for us to have confidence in him. Look at what he says, verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now you say, wait a minute, that seems like a very generic expression of the doctrine that if we ask things of God, he will give them to us. And it is. John deliberately starts with a generic or general expression of this reality that God answers his children's prayers. Don't you answer your children's requests? Don't you love to bless your kids? Of course you do. Silas came into my office this morning, and he says, Daddy, can I give you a hug? There was a time where Silas didn't want to give me a hug, so I'm taking everything I can get. In fact, last night he reminded me of that. He said, Daddy, remember when you, you said I didn't like you? I said, yes, Silas, that was true. But I've always loved you. There is a difference between love and like. Now, wow, I mean, I just want to bless him even if he doesn't like me. You know, look at that little round face with the curls and the glasses and, you know, whatever food is all over his face. And I want to bless him. I want to kiss him. I want to hold him. I want to hug him. I want to protect him. I want to do everything I can to provide blessing. I want to be a conduit for blessing for him. And my desire for him in that, of course, is greatly mitigated and stained. But God's is not. And his 
passion for blessing you comes via his commands, whether they are positive or negative, meaning whether they are imperatives or prohibitions, whatever they are, they are designed for his glory and your better good. And whatever it is that he has commanded of you, if you will do it, he will bless you. He will bless you. I'll give you a very personal illustration of that that happened with me this week or last week. We have a swimming pool. When we were looking for a house, we said, we're not getting a house with a pool. I don't know how we ended up with a pool, but you can have it if you want it, by the way. And the fact of the matter is it's become a real joy. Cole has kind of become the pool guy. He does the chemicals. He kind of takes care of the pool. I do some things, too. But we have what's called a salt cell, and the idea of that is it's better on your skin, and you know it costs a lot of money, but you save money over time because you don't use as many chemicals, and they tell you, you know, it'll eventually go bad like all things do. But we've wanted it, of course, to last as long as possible. And when we changed, uh, when, when we cleaned, Cole and I cleaned the salt cell not long ago, we put it back in, and certain lights come on and certain ones don't, and then they all go off, but it still appears to be working. So I'm Googling this, trying to figure it all out. I have a guy come over to the house, and I um, very happily paid him $95 to tell me what I already told him over the phone. It was a great experience. Uh, learned a lot from that. And when I began doing some more Googling, I discovered that there's a way to fix the circuit board. And I'm thinking, yeah, that's not something I do. I don't fix circuit boards. You know, I'm not sure I've ever even touched one unless it was by accident. But I'm following this going, I think I can do this. So I borrowed Bob Dickey's solder iron. Uh, Cole and Dawson and I opened the thing up. We clipped the old current limiter out, put the $7 one in, soldered it in, turned the thing on, and it works, and we saved $1,000. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. It was God's blessing to us that we were able to repair that. Does God want you to spend $1,000 that you don't have? Of course not. He wants you to be a wise and effective steward of all that he has provided to you. So we had that blessing by simply taking a little extra effort to kind of figure things out. I'm no electronics novice. Started to say expert. I'm not even a novice, but you know, some things you look at it and go, I think I can do this. And with some of them, you get into it and you go, Yeah, I can't do this. Uh, but with this one, by God's grace, we saw his kindness. I expressed my desire to him. I mean, I prayed a lot throughout that experience. Should be praying unceasingly, right? But here's the deal in Psalm 37 He does not only say, Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of his heart. He says in verse 1, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. See, that's the context. The desire of David's heart was not to be murdered by evildoers. Verse 2, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Now that be, might be after you die, right? But it will happen. So you can be certain that the person who has engaged in evil for your sake one day will no longer do that. You might say it this way. I know this won't last more than 100 years. That's a safe way to start. But either way, God will prevail 
Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still for the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. You know, perhaps there's someone in your family, maybe even your immediate family who carries out evil devices. You don't hate him. I mean, at times you do, but you don't intrinsically, fundamentally hate that loved one. You love him or her. And what you long for is to see the overcoming of evil devices. Verse 8 says, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. See, that applies to the evil person who repents of his evil and comes to know the Lord. Not just those who you like. You know, you ever find yourself in your evangelistic prayer praying for people that you're pretty convinced could get saved if they'd only, you know, just get a little more serious about the Bible? Do you pray for those who you might look at and say, it sure seems like this is a person who could never become a Christian? You don't know that about anybody. You don't know that. We could have easily thought that about Paul. Verse 10, in just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there, but the meek shall inherit the land. Apply that idea that you want those who are engaging in evil, you know, maybe even those who are in your local church, to inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. That's what you should be praying for. As you pray, Trust the Lord with your own soul as you practice biblical truth. Know that the Lord's going to nurture that in you. As you pray for loved ones, pray that he would redeem their souls, not your persuasive argument, and practice truth in their presence. Practice these truths in their presence. Pray your desires. Number three, trust God with your loved ones. And we've really kind of ventured into that idea already, haven't we? He will give you the desires of your heart, but specifically you might wonder what are the desires that I ought to be thinking about? Is it a generic expression of the idea that God will grant your prayers no matter what the issue? Yeah, it is, but then he tightens the funnel. He says, but here's what I'm talking about. Here's what I'm focusing on. Verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, we'll talk about what that means. That's, that's weird, isn't it? What, what could he possibly mean by that? If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. He says it again. He wants, it to be, he wants you to know. He wants you to understand. There is sin that leads to death, but what I'm asking you to do is to pray for those who are committing sins not leading to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. Ooh. <laughs> so there's sin... So John, you're saying there's sin that leads to death. You're saying, you're saying you're not telling me to pray for that? That's right, because there's no hope. You say, wow, who do I apply that to? Nobody, because you don't know. I'm not saying that you can't look at someone and think, wow, that certainly appears to be sin 
committed unto death. Now, what is that? What's the unforgivable sin? Say it. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. A repeated rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the whole point in the parable of the soils. Hebrews 12, 16 says that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. There was an earnestness in Esau's heart, and it was completely misguided. He sold his soul. He certainly had been subject to truth long enough that in his repeated willingness to reject the truth, he longed for some measure of repentance. We can't really know all that that is, but there was a desire in his heart for some kind of repentance, and it was impossible. Yes, he had passed the point of no spiritual return, and it does happen. It does happen. Your willingness to pray for those who have that appearance shows your trust in the Lord. Your willingness to pray for your own soul and to pray for those who are, you are convinced are believers shows your trust in the Lord. You believe that He can produce the change. And when you're willing especially to refrain or at least put a pause on your willingness to go to someone and you pray and you pray and you pray, you're showing your trust in the Lord even at the point where you go to that person. But especially, beloved, when you pray fervently for that person who, as far as you can tell, has boldly rejected the truth of the gospel time and time again, you show your inability to think of yourself as the ultimate biblical scholar and you're trusting the Lord. And that's far better. That's far better. When you think about doing this, when you acknowledge that this is what the Lord has called you to do, when you see your brother committing sin, not leading to death. You're acknowledging that you believe this is a brother and that he has not rejected the gospel, but that his momentary rejection of the gospel is not characteristic of his life, but it's enough of a problem that it's causing a problem. If you love him or her, you will do what's necessary to develop a platform to be able to say it. But isn't this why we have family groups? It is why we have family groups. It's not the only reason. But one of the great benefits is that as we involve ourselves faithfully in the family group environment, your small Christian family with whom you have engaged in vibrant, beautiful, loving singing and eating and Bible study and you know, whatever else you do together, that that joy together legitimately provides a spirit-filled, brethren-based application for addressing each other's sin out of love, speaking the truth in love, Ephesians 4. Speaking the truth in love. It's verse 15, Ephesians 4. That's part of the initial result of the equipping process. Now, a lot of people will look at this and say, oh, my word, you've got to be kidding me. You can't be serious that you think you have the ability or the authority or the platform to address my sin. 
Often, beloved, people come to a text like this, they come to this biblical reality from a very, very bad experience where they were simply criticized and there was a lot of self-righteousness and there was no loving effort along the way to deal with one's sin until it finally got so bad that they got kicked out of the house or fired from their job. And so we need to give grace to those folks who come to this text with that mindset and take the time to, to talk it through. You know, the wrong thing to do is to, to degrade people like that. Rather than being a degrader of people, be a defender. You know, be the person who carries truth to the person who has a wrong understanding of this. Well, they came over to my house, you know, three or four of them, and they confronted me. They ganged up on me. That's the common response. They ganged up on me. I would say if it's done properly, they ganged up on Satan on your behalf. They're attempting to snatch you from the fire, as we see in the book of Jude. And they're not going to do it perfectly. And they're probably going to sin while doing it, just so you know. That's probably going to happen because they're sinners just like you are. And the far better response, rather than addressing their sin, is to thank them for addressing yours. That's the way it works. And maybe you would say, yeah, maybe I'll get back to their sin later, but maybe I won't. Because I'm not sure I was of the right mindset to even be able to be thinking rightly about that. What I'm assessing as a speck in their eye might be a delusion because i got a log in my eye. Right? Far better to receive that correction. I'm getting ahead of myself here. But what we're really talking about is praying and therefore displaying trust in the Lord with your loved ones. Verse 17. All wrongdoing is sin, he says, but there is sin that does not lead to death. He repeats it. So what he's talking about here is that, you know, you start with this belief that the brother you believe you need to address is a brother. He hasn't committed sin unto death. But the reality is he's saying, pray about it. Pray about it. How much of your prayer life, first of all, is organized? Structured. You've got some legitimate, specific, set plan for engaging with God via prayer. And then second, how much of it is focused upon how you're going to lovingly and graciously address things that need to be addressed in your brothers' and sisters' lives, right? Some portion of your daily prayer time should be committed to that, and you probably ought to be praying about it throughout the day, and, I, and I'm, getting, I'm guessing you probably are. I'm guessing that it... With things like this, it so prevails upon your heart and your love for that person causes you to engage with the Lord, pleading with the Lord to produce repentance and reconciliation in this person's heart. All wrongdoing is sin. Wow, that's a framer. And it really ought to help you understand the idea that love covers a multitude of sins. Again, you don't blink at anybody's sin. There's nothing in Scripture that says, well, you just act, you know, just be tolerant. That's a very worldly idea, tolerance. But humility says, I don't need to address everything right now because I'm not the church watchdog. You know, a lot of people will say, I'm not the Holy Spirit. I, I, I don't like using that phrase because it might make it sound like we, maybe we thought we were. But there is a, a role. There's an involvement. Sometimes we say that about people who are actually engaging in loving interaction. Well, they think they're the Holy Spirit. Maybe not. Maybe they're actually trusting God in their willingness to do things, and they're not doing it with perfection, but they're doing it in a way that actually displays hope in the Lord. Maybe we ought to be more inclined to assume that 
about those who are, in, who are willing to engage in this loving practice. Think of this with your kids. Proverbs 19, 18, discipline your son for there is hope. The NAS says while there is hope, implying that there's coming a day where there is no hope. Right? Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It does happen. You know? Hebrews 6, that person who fell away. He was not a Christian. He acted like a Christian. He said he was a Christian. You've heard what's happened with Joshua Harris. Prolific writer. Very connected to C.J. Mahaney for many years. Just this last week, on the heels of his wife saying she was done with their marriage, he has now professed, I am not a Christian. Where did this come from? Well, if we look at that strictly and faithfully through the grid of Scripture, this is a man who pretended really well for a really long time. They went out from us because they were not of us. That's the only theology that can apply to a situation like that. There's no other way. He was a good actor for many, many years. There are a lot of things we could talk about related to that, but I think the real issue is that all wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death, and we need to be willing to commit ourselves to addressing those things in each other's lives. We need to be faithful to that. And we need not hold each other to such a high standard that we expect one another to do it with any measure of sinlessness. I would expect that if you're going to approach me about my sin, you might be sinning the sin of fear of man. And I ought to be gracious about that and do everything I possibly can to be a participant in the alleviation of that. The same for you. Verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. This speaks of the perseverance of the saints. Who keeps whom? Well, if you're keeping Jesus, it's because he's keeping you. This is the pervasive reality with regard to the doctrine of election. And anyone, anytime somebody says to me that they kind of cringe at the doctrine of election, I think, okay, we've got some work to do here. And you know what that work is? Bible reading. That's it. If you just read your Bible, you see predestination. You see election. For the person who loves God, loves his word, he'll see it and say, oh, I guess I need to understand this. I guess I need to not hate this. I guess I need to not reject this. The doctrine of election is at the basis of evangelism. God will save those whom he has predestined unto eternal life. He keeps those he predestined. It kind of simplifies things. The starting place and the ending place are all with God. God determines the salvation of those whom he saves. He saves them for his glory forever. Now, I know that's not humanly likable. That's why you read the Bible. And you say, I'm going to subject my thinking to the Bible. Read what it says. Read what God has said. So as you engage in this practice of trusting God with your loved ones, think this way from verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. When John Fallahy was here a couple years ago to talk about uh, Roman Catholicism in our Doctrines of Grace series, we, we walked you through total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, 
Irresistible Grace, Perseverance of the Saints. And five different men taught those. We taught you biographies. And John came and helped us with that. And he taught in the midst of that on Roman Catholicism. What he said was this. He said, you want to help a Roman Catholic talk about Jesus? Now, there are other issues. I mean, there are a whole lot of false doctrines in the current Roman Catholic organization that make it a false church. But the primary issue is their Christology. Their Christology. So you have the confessional booth that replaces sanctification. You don't need sanctification. You just need to confess privately to this guy that you don't really know. John says here, he is the true God in eternal life. You know who he's talking about? He's talking about Jesus. He is the true God in eternal life. And there are those who reject the deity of Christ because they think it through eventually. They say, you know what? I never really believed this. My parents just kind of forced it on me. And that's why we've said through the study of, first, uh, through the study of John recently, beloved, know what you believe about this. Don't just acquiesce because it sounds good. It sounds right. But when he says that unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins, he's saying, you're not a Christian if you don't believe Jesus is God and if you don't think of it as a fundamental truth. And plenty of people will say, no, 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 you don't know me. Who do you think you are? You don't know my theology. You don't know my Christology. And I would say, I know what it's not. And what it's not is biblical. And it's critical, therefore, that we think through this, we understand it, we understand it rightly. So that as we trust the Lord with our loved ones, we're proclaiming him. See that? And so you're praying. As you're praying, as you're going to the Lord, you're trusting him with your soul, you're trusting him with your desires, all of them, but specifically you're trusting him with the desire that your loved ones come to know him doing that based on sound theology. That's why we did our Theology for Life series. Not so you'd be some, you know, doctrinal seminary professor-like kind of guy around the water cooler at work, but so that you would know what to tell the unbeliever, you'd know what to tell the believer. And a sound theology starts with a sound understanding of what the Bible says about God, particularly the person of Christ. Well, number four... Trust God with your idolatry. Trust God with your idolatry. And, you know, it's not um, uncommon that when someone's been reading through the book of 1 John, they get to this last sentence where John says, little children, keep yourself from idols. And they think, where did that come from? And what it shows is there hasn't really been much of an effort to understand what John is saying effectually. Who is the person who engages in idolatry? If I asked for a show of hands, I would hope that you would all raise both of them. But what John does here is masterful. I believe it's genius for him to end with this statement because it covers everybody. It covers everybody. Why would someone keep himself from idols? Well, if he's an unbeliever, he should know that his idols are his life. And so when you tell himself, like Jesus told the rich young ruler, go sell everything, he said, um, wow, that's a bummer because I'm keeping that stuff. Sorry. So he forsook eternal life. That's why he went to Jesus. How do I have eternal life? Sell everything. Now, Jesus was 
I don't think it was hyperbolic. I don't think he was stretching. And I think he was simply going to the next level of communicating to this man that there are things you're not willing to give up to actually have eternal life. And so the, the man went away sad. Though for the person who engages in idolatry, and that's his life, John still very endearingly refers to them as little children. Is that okay with you? That John, as a pastor, as a theologian, as an apostle, would think of those within the body of Christ who are not believers, those who hang out with Christians, that he has a loving, endearing passion for those who are yet without Christ. Not the John who was a brand new believer, he was a son of thunder. And his inclination was more so to kind of blast people with the truth and he became the apostle of love. And so his willingness is to speak of those whom he loves with an endearing spirit. But ultimately, this should most certainly include those who are actual little children of the Lord. Keep yourself from idols. And so I encourage you, beloved, to make a list of your idols. You know, what are those things in your life? prevent you from loving Christ, that prevent you from praying unceasingly. Let me start with this. If you're not engaged in discipleship, it's going to be very difficult for you to even know. If there's not some, at least one person who's faithful to the Lord, who looks at you kind of perplexed and says, so you do that every week? but you can't be committed to the body of Christ every week? You know, if you don't have that person in your life who will lovingly bring to your attention your obvious waywardness, then what's happened is you've become desensitized to reality, and therefore you run from those who would lovingly do that. That's just one way of saying you need discipleship. That's one way of saying it. When um, somebody says, you know, um, and I don't want to be too specific about this, but when somebody says, you know, we're going we're gonna to have to miss because it's my birthday or it's our anniversary. Um, and, and there's like three Sundays. Like how many birthdays do you have, friend? I mean, I know people who only have one every four years, but it, when it doesn't, I don't think it works the other way around. Um, you know, and I've told you before, if we did that in our home, we'd, we'd miss a lot of Sundays. My birthday is next week, you know. My birthday falls on Sunday, so I can't, I can't go to church when it's my birthday. Um, where is that idea in the Bible that your birthday ought to be a big deal? Now, I'm not saying it's bad for other people to make a big deal out of your birthday. I'm simply saying, and by the way, if you've left on Sunday on your birthday, I'm not talking about you. I'm not thinking of anybody specific. But it is a cultural deal, you know, where we say things like, we use the word family, and all of a sudden we expect everybody to fall before us and go, oh, I got it. It's a family emergency. You know, you've said that to your boss before, right? It's a family emergency. Oh, okay, sorry. Um, I didn't mean to bring it up. Don't, don't sue me. Uh, it's family. Oh, it's family. And I get it. You know, things related to the family ought to be dealt with with tenderness and care. You have a huge responsibility to your family. But don't abuse that idea. Don't abuse that idea. I mean, can you not go to Disneyland on Saturday or on Wednesday? And if it is a Sunday, whatever. 
But if it's like every Sunday for six weeks or it's like 12 times out of the year, what you're saying is, I don't mind forsaking the fellowship of the believers. See, this is what makes this idea non-legalistic. When we say things like you need to be here every Sunday, that's clearly legalism. But when we say things like, are you devoted to the body? Are you devoted to the body in such a way that your idols become no longer idols because you put them in their right place and then you can actually enjoy them because they're not sinful in and of themselves? These things taking priority over the Lord, his church, and a passionate commitment to the Lord's Day gathering are certainly indicative of spiritual trouble. There's so much that we could look at with regard to this idea of idolatry. But the reality is... Your devotion to the Lord shows itself in your devotion to his children. This is why we have family groups. It's why we have discipleship. What I can confidently say when someone asks us about our church is that this is a faithful people. It's very rare that when a a person visits our church that I don't hear from them, this is an amazingly friendly church. And I'm glad for that because that overcomes some of my misgivings in the pulpit. You know, well, that guy was harsh, but the people are cool. Look with me at Luke 18, and we'll finish here. Luke 18. I believe a magnificent expression of how you and I are to respond to the prayers of those who love us, our own prayers for those whom we love, and the willingness to practice what we are praying for. Rather than going through the whole passage, let's just begin with verse 13. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Be careful that you don't engage in addressing someone else's sin with sweet self-righteousness. But if someone does that to you, thank them for the sweetness. Thank them for the love. Let God address the imperfections of how they address your sin. Know that there is at least some recognition or belief in this person's heart that you have not committed the sin that leads to death. The other details can get sorted out later. But for you, if you are convinced that there's something in someone else's life that you must address, pray. Display your trust in the Lord by entrusting him with your own soul, by entrusting him with all your desires, but especially entrusting him with your loved ones. Pray and pray fervently and then remove the log from your own eye. Guard yourselves from idols. Know that if we do that, the Lord will use us for his glory in equipping each other and winning others to the Savior. Father, we worship you and we thank you for Jesus Christ. Pray that you'd help us as we worship you now to do so in purity, knowing that One day we will see him and we will be as he is. We will be in the glorified state 
And we will no longer have any need of praying about how and when and where to address our own sin, much less someone else's, because we will be in that perfected, glorified state. Thank you for Jesus who has made all this certain. It's in his name we pray. Amen.